This is the Wild at Hunt podcast and I'm your host, Jordan Jensen. This is a podcast where I explore tools and techniques that you can use to build stronger and deeper relationships with yourself, with your partner and your community. If you want to follow us online, you can find us at Wild at Heart on Facebook or Strictly for My Gingers on Instagram, or you can find our website at wildatheartrelationships.com.au. Now, on to the podcast. And why don't you tell me a little bit about yourself and your story, mate? Okay. Um, so I'm a 42-year-old man, um, and I'm a father of two kids. Um, I have a, a daughter who's 10 and a son who is seven. And I live with my partner, Kate, um, up on the mid-north coast at Halfway Creek, just a little um, north of Coffs Harbour. And we run together, my wife and I run a, a nature connection business called Nature Philosophy. So we run lots of different programs that are all around getting people into a body felt sense of connection to nature. So not, not an intellectual idea or not just a, uh, recording information and data in their heads about how to survive in the bush, but how to provide a pathway for people to experience their own unique sense of um, felt connection to country, to the land, to earth, and also then by default to other people, like to tribe or community. So I think that's, um, that's our job at the moment, which is a beautiful job to have. It's very rewarding. Um, yeah, and we love it. Uh, and there's nothing better we can think of using our time for, especially at this time when we've drifted away from that, just the naturalness of feeling that. That just used to be a, a natural birthright um, back in the day. We'd, you're just born into cultures that had that as a part of the fabric of their understanding of life. It was the lens through which they viewed everything, um, their connection to land and other people. And therefore, I think they had healthy identity structures too and didn't suffer from a lot of the things, the modern afflictions we suffer from. So hopefully we're providing a pathway home for people to that understanding, like a bridge, uh, so people can access it. And um, yeah, we're super activated around that vision. And like I said, really enjoy it. Yeah, I know I feel so much better when I'm out in nature daily, like properly using mm. body to go and explore a natural environment like climbing over rocks um pulling yep. myself through yep. trees and that that's actually yep. i've been in quarantine for the last two weeks now and like i just have this consistent craving to go out and go mountain biking through some forests <laughs> yeah like that in itself for me is harder than the lack of human con like human physical contact yes yeah totally i agree i i hear you and so what, what kind of led you to this point is, as, as you said, it's not really a normal thing in our society to be raised with that connection mm. to the land, yeah. and desire for tribe. But I think that there's enough questions there that I don't think we get brought into that. Yeah, totally. It's hard to know where to start with that story in terms of what led me to it, but it is a really good question because it's not something that's normal. And back when we started before these concepts of even rewilding and, bushcraft and all that wasn't really a thing um when we started doing survival skills people were like what are survival skills you know because it wasn't really in the vocabulary of our you know cultural awareness as it is now and so um it i think it was um written in the sand before i arrived in this body you know like in, in a lot of ways i believe that we all have a, a vision that kind of 
we co-create. It's not just pure destiny, but I do feel like there is something like a like a blueprint that we do fulfill in our own unique way. And so I went. I had a normal upbringing um, with my brothers and my sister and my both parents and um, suburban upbringing. Not really that connected to nature. It was the normal sort of mainstream expression of the modern you know Australian family. And you know I played rugby league and I went to an all boys school and then went to university because I didn't know what I wanted to do. So I just went to university and I studied finance and economics. And then in that final year at uni, I had a lot. Yeah, (laughs) I know. It's so funny. But I just wanted to, I wanted to earn lots of money. I was like, who earns the most, the most obscene amount of money in the world? And it was, it's fund managers, you know? And I was like, I'll be a fund manager. I'll manage other people's money. And so that was purely the the impetus to, to study. And so in that four years of study, though, my values changed. I also learned um, quite intimately how the financial system works. And I was like, wow, this doesn't really resonate with me. And at the same time, my mum, I remember saying to her, there's got to be something more to life like than just this day-to-day existence. There's got to be something more. Like I was really reached a point in my life where I was like, is this it? Like, is this really what this human experience is about? And at that very same time, I had a couple of really significant experiences. One was I read a book um, called The Journey uh, by a guy, an American guy called Tom Brown Jr. And uh, that book was about his um, time being mentored by an old Southern Lip and Apache Native American guy. And the book really spoke to me, not to my head, but to my heart. It like, really moved me in ways I hadn't felt before. And so at the end of the book, it said, you know, you can come and study with this guy and learn how to survive in the wild and learn the, the ancient sort of spiritual skills of indigenous communities, really. And I was like totally turned on by that. And so I um, sold everything I had. I bought a house while I was at uni, you know, and I sold that and I made lots of money off that. So I'm like, I'm going to America for seven months. And I left um, Australia and went on a big epic journey through America on my own, studying with this guy, Tom Brown, and also meeting a whole bunch of really interesting people and finding out who I was as a 24, 25 year old. I finally unplugged from like my personal matrix of reference identity points of things that reflect back to me who I am, like the car I drove, the circle I mixed in, the clothes I wore, the type of things I was interested in, you know, my, even my family were reference points around this identity that I just inherited. So this uh, seven months was like a concentrated form of just diving into in a pure way, who am I? outside of all of those structures and so while I was learning a whole bunch of really interesting survival and um, I guess healing shamanic sort of healing techniques with Tom I was also going through my own unraveling of the story I'd bought into and looking at who I was outside of that so it was a very big bifurcation point in my life where my path went a different way and what I found in that study was the meaning that I was missing I found this connection to myself and the land through techniques of I guess nature connection practices that I'd been missing and I felt full and I felt activated and I felt purposeful and so it was the perfect medicine for me at that time to find my path and also 
closely related to that at the end of those seven months as I changed so much I went and did a vision quest which is a four-day solo experience in the bush where you actually seek your purpose like what is my purpose in life so you remove yourself from all your distractions and you go and ask the the universe the creator god whatever you want to call that universal flow um, what am I here to do like not do I think I want to do but what am I truly here to do and so that perfectly capped off that seven month you know journey and I came back to Australia and started doing what we do now you know in its infancy okay so that really after those four days this really came out as your purpose here yeah so the four days was it didn't give me everything but it gave me like I asked what's my sole purpose and I got that and I said well how do I express that through you know like this world and I got a sort of what I thought was being a teacher in a school. So I came back and researched being a teacher because that was one of the messages, but it wasn't about teaching in a school. It was about teaching in another way, in another format. And so running our own programs and sharing what we'd learned. What were you asking? What's my purpose? Was it like a part of yourself or a, like? Um, yeah, that's a really good question. Hmm. Um, well, in, yeah, the, it's a big, big question because that it can get confusing. But yeah, I'm asking, um, I'm asking the create like the 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 higher intelligence ex that exists out there beyond me. Like so, I feel and believe there's a there's an intelligence that moves in and through all things, ourselves included. But is not us. That is external to us. But it like is like the the fabric of everything, and it and it it has a, a consciousness and a, an intelligence to it that, that we can rebound off and get clarity through. Maybe that's just my framework. And maybe really what I'm asking is just the higher part of my own self that knows that is all knowing um, where do I need to head, you know, but beyond our egoic structure and our intellect, um, there's obviously a part of us that is more aware, more conscious. And maybe it was just that, I don't actually know specifically, but I do know that when we go into nature into, and into the purity of sort of wild nature and we remove ourselves from those distractions, we can get answers to questions that we otherwise are just too busy and distracted to hear. Okay, so, so to answer your question, <laughs> I don't know exactly where that comes from. But I have my own understanding of it. Yeah, I, I do find it interesting question to explore because uh, like I'm a big fan of Jung's work as well with the concept of the collective unconscious yep. and uh, so was this something you were always able to like ask questions to and hear back or part of that seven month journey allowed you to you know, start growing and to be able to get rid of those distractions and start listening to it yeah I, I think um everyone has the ability to ask these questions and get a, a message back. But like I said before, sometimes it takes, or not sometimes, but most cases these days, it takes an extreme experience to really drop the layers of distraction that we hold in place um, that keep us from really knowing who we really are. But we, we've created these lives that are so busy, so overstimulated, so distracted, and so that resides so deeply in the intellect rather than some body felt rightness or awareness that 
we need to go and uh, remove ourselves from our normal distracted lives and we need to sit in in the purity of nature and really dance like there's a dance that happens during the quest and you you can answer your ask your question through this dance so you it's very dynamic and you're feeling the question as well as you're asking it you know logically in your head you're feeling it in your heart and what gets rebounded back in terms of the answer can come through lots of different things it can come through a bird arriving and the feeling that you get from this bird landing on the tree right next to you or it can just be a knowing in your own body so deeply that you just don't doubt it um, and so we can access these um, deeper parts of ourselves and I guess universal flow when we unplug from our normal distracted selves or our normal reality matrix as well. Mm. Yeah, I noticed, yeah, I noticed um, a couple of similarities in, I guess the process I went through of like growing and growing into myself, I guess, cause yeah, similar background. I went into university to study law and psychology because I thought that's be a way I'd earn a shitload of money (laughs) (laughs) and have all like the social praise and everything. And (laughs) then, yeah, the more I went into it, the more I kept making decisions, which made sense logically, but never filled me up emotionally because that's, you know, if you're trying to use your head to fill your heart, it's not going to work. Yeah. and so it was interesting to start it, starting to make decisions which didn't logically make sense, but they felt right. Like just in my, like start, you know, listening to my body and go, well, what do I actually want to do right now? Let's mm. dispense with what makes sense and what I should do uh, from some you know, external pressure perspective. Yeah. And go, okay, what, what's actually really calling to me right now? Mm. And it's cool to see other people going through that process. Yes. Uh, what? How did you start learning? Like, because it took me, like, probably, it's it's an ongoing process of learning to like listen to the feedback from my body. Yeah. What was, yeah. I guess, the key points in your process of you know, stopping, li- preferencing listening to everything your head was saying, and mm-hmm. starting to tune into your body a bit more? Wow, that that's a big question too, because that's a big journey. Like, especially for men, I believe, because of our training and almost indoctrination into what in the way we um, understand learning, even and, and and understand growing up. And so, men, um, I think, are more afflicted by just by the biology of who we are as beings, that the task-oriented nature of who we are, that we really like to get shit done and we like to set a target and achieve it and we're good at that. And so that predisposes us, I believe, to really swallowing this, um, you know, being ruled by our head sort of training that we get uh, in school. We get it from parents and we get it at university. We get it in lots of parts of culture. So it's a process of unlearning and it's a deep one. you know, like to really un- unhook from the stories in our head, we need to silence silence our mind enough, like still the mind enough to really be able to hear even or feel what our body's telling us, you know, and we all would have had those experiences accidentally too, when we've gone to go a certain direction in life and it, we felt like, oh no, we shouldn't go that way, but we ignore it and we go forward and, you know, we have a big disaster or something, you know, a health crisis or a whatever. So we've all felt it before. 
it's come up really strongly, but how do we craft that intentionally? I think it's a practice of really silent, like doing um, techniques and practices that bring you out of your head and into your body. So meditation's good. You know, vision quest is the most powerful technique I've found because uh, inevitably during those four days that you're questing, there's a place where your mind just literally gives up. Like it, it wants to feed off something, but you're not giving it anything to feed off. And it literally starves to death for a moment. And in that moment, you realize what your truth is and it's beyond the mind. And it's, a, it's an awareness of connection to things and to yourself. And so you can't, un, you can't unremember that when that happens. And so questing is a great way to really recognize what the mind really is and to detach from it and see that a lot of the times we're not even in control of it. It's just a, a tool that's been so overworked that it starts to rule the, rule the show. And so I think practices that take you out of that, like um, even just um, meditative practices that, that are dynamic and moving too, like martial arts or Tai Chi or yoga or, you know, embodied sort of movement stuff that really relates to being in a meditative state, meaning that we're, um, we're ac accessing stillness in the mind, but we're dynamic in the body. I think all of those things are, are constantly rebalancing uh, that, you know, mind body relationship. Because mm, we are so head preference now. I, one of my most challenging um, views I was given from one of my spiritual mentors was Jordan, you're really smart. And like my ego fucking lit up. I was like, yes, I'm smart. That's awesome. He's like, and, yeah. uh, he's like, and that's exactly what's going to hold you back right now. Cause you're so focused on figuring stuff out and having the right answer and doing all the best decisions um, that you're not going to let yep. yourself just enjoy it. Like just be in an experience and learn through doing cause you have to like have the whole plan in your head first. Yeah. And yeah, like so much of that for me was just, I was so afraid to fail because I was so invested in that little image I had of like, I'm the guy who always has the right answer and always gets things right. Even though I didn't, but yeah. I was very good at deluding myself. Yes. Yeah, totally. I think all that comes from childhood too. I think the conditional nature of our praise and approval framework and also conditional love too, you know, as kids, you know, and I've seen this contrasted, in what I'll call Western culture, like our modern Australian culture, and also our in like First Nations people here, Indigenous culture up in Arnhem Land, where we've spent a lot of time, how they interact with kids in a very, oh, it's almost polarized way. Um, the models that we um, run with, the software program we sort of run with with kids, and so I feel like that um, that starts as a child when we're given praise and approval when we act in a certain way. For yeah. example, we ask a question, you get the right answer, you get a pat on the head, little serotonin hit, and, um, and you move on. Good boy, you know, good boy, Jordan, you did well. And so what happens is that external praise and approval, we start to rely on it for our own security, our own center, this concept of having our own center, which just means we feel safe and secure in our own being. And eventually, in extreme cases, in the absence of someone approving of us externally, we feel unsafe. We don't feel whole. We, we don't feel valid or any, you know, like, and, and so we constantly seek this external 
praise or approval so we get more awards or we do well at work or you know we please our partners and it's all like it's all beautiful but eventually we're 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 imprisoned by our need to have an external um, person reinforce who we are and so on our own we're nothing well that's the idea and so i think that gets set up really early around um, conditional love we're loved when we behave in a certain way when we show good manners that's good boy all that sort of stuff which is completely unnecessary in terms of teaching kids because kids are amazing at just modeling behavior so a good example is manners you know you want your kids to grow up to have good manners so people in society will respect them and, and approve of them but you don't need to make kids say please and thank you because they'll they don't need to be made to do it when they're made to do it they're doing it just to get um to be, to be approved of it's not genuine it's not coming from their heart so what you're teaching your kid to do is you say the right thing at the right time so people are happy with you instead of letting a kid genuinely feel gratitude and that might take them to be 13 or 14 until they understand that concept fully to say oh thanks for that i really appreciate it so we train them to be good little you know good little boys and girls rather than letting them grow into just that naturalness through watching other adults that say thank you you know you don't need to train them but it's a good example of how this um this kind of external reinforcement thing gets really inbuilt and deeply ingrained and then manifests when we're older where you know you want to get the right answer and you feel great when someone says you're really intelligent you know? yeah i love that distinction you just made there of the difference between you know being polite and then being genuine yeah where and i notice like, so much of my politeness is disingenuous because i'm doing mm. it to maintain like so i don't offend someone or so i'm keen to do the right thing rather than actually wanting to do the right thing so it has it been raising your kids with that sort of mentality it's been good. Like it's been really good because it's, it's reaffirmed to me. Um, if you just get out of their way and you really respect their own sovereignty over their own being, cause they, they are full. And this is the difference. I, I, I'll go back a step. This is the difference between Western culture models where a, a child is born as a baby. And as they grow up, we, we think we need to tell them what they need. We think we need to tell them, you know what's right for them and they don't know that's our underlying assumption and also they need to be controlled and taught how to be good humans hmm. the the indigenous perspective from this land and from a lot of other lands in the world particularly in the communities in northeast arnhem land where we've spent time with the yongu people and family they assume when the baby's born it is its full manifestation it's completely whole it knows exactly what it needs to do and all they need to do is to provide to meet those needs when they're expressed. So if a baby kind of looks tired, they hold it so it goes to sleep. You know, um, if it's hungry, they feed it, you know, that kind of thing. And so they assume the baby knows. And then they also don't control. They don't control the kids. So if the, the kid, the four-year-old kid picks up the machete to go and hack at a tree, they don't run over in a panic and rip the machete out of their hand. They just look over and keep an eye out and just watch that kid use a machete. And where we would run over and assume that child doesn't know what they're doing, they're going to cut their finger off. And so, and also throw a bunch of fear towards the kid around sharp objects as we, you know, impose our own fear on the kid. And so 
it's been really critical that we had that little, um, I guess, traineeship up there and, and saw how communities work when they're supported, when there's lots of aunties and uncles around, when there's time for, you know, the fabric of a community to stay tight-knit. Um, it's different for us down here. We have a different model where most mothers are raising small kids by themselves at home alone yeah. with no one. Um, and so it's a different model. So I'm not comparing and saying what we do is wrong. I'm just saying that they lead to different results. So us having that training up there really allowed us to play with this concept of not controlling our kids and seeing what happens. And also not only not controlling, but meeting their needs. If they ask for something, you give it to them, you know, and that doesn't create a spoiled kid. That creates a safe kid that, that looks at the world and says, when I need something, it's going to, going to be provided. And so what that builds into children is less neediness. They don't need to have that reinforced. They'd only ask for things when there's a genuine need. And if you meet that need, they feel safe because you as their protector, their guardian, have, are keeping them safe. And so when we constantly say no to kids, and we do it a lot, and I've caught myself doing it, it sends a different message that if you really need something, well, maybe we'll meet, out, meet, meet that need if we feel like or if it's convenient to us, but we won't, you know, if it's not, we won't. We'll just say no, no, no. And so very different models, and we could talk about that for three hours, but there's just very different models. And so us playing with that really reaffirmed that, wow, that if you let the kid lead and you support them along that journey and you trust they know what they're doing they will know what they're doing um, it's almost like a self-fulfilling prophecy um, in in the way that kids raise to the expectations that you hold of them um, and so if you treat them like they do know what they need and you speak to them from that place even at times when they don't you're still sending the message that hey i trust your own intuition your own um, feelings around this so i'm going to ask you you know, what do you want for dinner? Do you want this or do you want that? You know, and, and trust that they know what they want. Um, and so that I feel like is the uh, uh, parenting that we didn't get. And so when we get to adulthood, we do find it a little harder to know what we know, know what we really need, and then also be be able to ask for it. Yeah. as well to have the voice to ask for it and so that manifests in lots of different ways but it's a fundamental difference between the two cultures one culture is not better than the other but there's definitely um different results from the different approaches mm. Mm. absolutely yeah and i imagine you know there's obviously some strengths to one culture and some strengths to another it's just yes being able to learn yeah. both so you can you can start to play, you know, just shuffle into yeah. raising your kids one way, the way you were raised. Now you actually have a choice because you've got perspective. Absolutely. And that's, that's really yeah. cool. So in the beginning, you mentioned uh, something about the, the modern afflictions, uh, like the affliction of a modern society. Mm. Would you, would you care to elaborate a little bit on that, on what your perspective <laughs> Yeah, but I think in terms of how it relates, like I'm very interested in, 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 in men, like what makes men men these days and what are the differences from men in, 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 in historical times, how we've developed 
what are the different pressures on us as men now what are being what are we being asked to show up with now like lots i so that modern affliction thing i think um very closely related to oh that external approval or the unconditional love they're both the same thing like the, the conditional love sorry um when we're approved of we're, we're given love when we're not there's a withdrawal of love um and so we learn that we need to behave in a certain way to get uh, approval. I think for the modern affliction that I see in young men, for example, and this definitely was true for me and still to a, a lesser extent is even now, is that I think at some point along our journey, we lose our voice as men yeah. or as young boys. Most young boys are raised by their mother at home, even beyond um, ages where in a traditional culture, they would have transitioned more into the space of the men and been sort of mentored there. And so without that transition, the rite of passage where that boy transitions into a young man, which is much younger than what you, what you might think it is, um, they stay connected to the mother beyond where that would be healthy and appropriate. And that's not anything against mothers. It's not anything against young boys, but it's just the nature of our economic model that we run with where most of the time now, even mum's not even there, mum's at work too. And so there's often women carers in childcare or school predominantly that are raising our boys for us. And so um, there is a time when there's an appropriate to the mother letting go of control of the kid the boy and the boy stepping up into more responsibility that doesn't happen these days um, in our culture there's no clear um, passage for boys to walk through around that and so what I feel happens in the very early days is we learn how to please our mothers we learn how to get and that's just natural it's our biological survival instinct to um, do behavior even as an infant that gets a smile from mum or, or gets a hug or gets we get picked up and nurtured or we get put on the breast or you know we learn how to get attention and do um, behaviors that are approved of as we get um, beyond infancy and this is the real critical phase I think four five and six when we start to explore our own autonomy we can move around we can bang things we can break windows that's when um, I think the distortion comes in where we're doing behaviors at that point just to please uh, the mum and we're getting rewarded for it and we're having the, the punished in a way with the withdrawal of love when we do things that are not sort of appropriate and so a lot of the times um, when kids are maybe that young they can freely express emotion like in a torrent of emotion, they can let it go. So you imagine the two boys having a fight over a Tonka truck in the sandpit and one boy pulls it out of the other boy's hands and the boy that's lost the Tonka truck just screams and like has a tantrum and actually tries to hit the other boy and, you know, and just fully lets it out. And then you'll notice if you don't intervene that that naturally comes to a conclusion and that boy starts sobbing and then settles and starts breathing normally. And then we'll go back to playing, maybe with something else, maybe even with that same boy. They've moved that emotion um, that came up for them fully. They didn't repress any of it. As they get to seven and eight, though, you know, they might have their, their room might be all messy because someone else mess, messed it up. And mum comes in and yells at them about having a messy room but they feel like that's an injustice because they didn't make it messy and they go to say something like 
that's not right or that's not fair and they're angry and they want to express that anger but they know it's not it won't be pleasing or approved of by mum and so they go to say something but don't say anything you know they hold on to it as a as an emotion but it's not vocalized it's not it's not expressed through the vibration of voice and emotion and so we hold on to it and we learn then how to internalize and hold on, hold back from saying things just to get to be pleasing and so that those experiences layer and layer on top of each other as we go through puberty as we become young men at 18 we're still doing it we do it to our peer group we, we only display behavior that will get approved of and all the while we're losing who we truly are the authentic man that sits underneath that it's still there but it's just so layered on top of and then you get to adulthood and you're in a relationship with a woman you know that you've replaced mum for and you're doing the same thing and so when tough stuff comes up and the woman's asking the man to respond you you almost go blank and don't know what to say because you have lost your voice and you've lost the ability to just speak your authentic truth that is not regulated by the response of the other person be it negative or positive and so we hold on to our truth trying to please our woman our intimate partner but that doesn't get us anywhere. And what it builds in young men is a resentment because we want to be able to say what's true for us, but we don't have the strength and the courage to do it. We lost that ability over time. And so I think that in terms of modern afflictions, I see that in the work I do with men as the one core common theme that we all share that in some way in life, we've lost our voice and we we feel and that's part of our personal power our, our voice is our personal power so to be able to regain that and speak our truth without fear of retribution or disapproval or whatever or withdrawal of love is a powerful place to be and if anything it'll get it'll bring more love towards us which is the you know like the contradiction or the the paradox the paradox right? yeah yeah yeah, that, that is interesting because it's not, you know, feel like you're in a safe space where you can say anything. It's like feel free to express yourself honestly and mm. be at peace with the consequences of that. Yeah. I guess a lot of people, they focus on, well, myself included, I, f I still habitually will focus on, oh, God, if, if I say what I'm truly thinking right now, mm. X, Y, Z might happen. Um, yep. And I'm good at looking at the first order cost of that but I'm yeah. not good at looking at the second or third order cost of, okay, well, you know, this is just mm. training me to like stay silent more and more and tolerate mm. situations I don't like more and more. And yeah. eventually that's just going to eclipse my entire life. It's just, it's a life of tolerance and resentment rather than yep. a life where, you know, we have the conflict and we get it over and done with. Like we have our yep. spirited debate and we come back yeah. close together because now we actually trust each other to speak yes. true rather than having play like this guessing game of walking on eggshells. Yeah, absolutely. There's lots of second order costs to that in terms of um, not speaking our truth. And one is the resentment that we feel eventually towards, not it gets expressed towards partners, but really it's a resentment towards ourselves that we don't feel stronger just to be true to who we are. And um, the other cost is that we, um, we police ourselves like it's not even a true 
a lot of it's perceived like we think if we did say our truth then we would lose that partner or they wouldn't be happy with us or whatever but it's not actually true we're policing ourselves we've learned to control what we say for fear of something that is not even going to happen anyway you know i think the the paradox again is that when men stand up and speak their truth powerfully and i don't mean aggressively i mean powerfully their intimate partner, even if they don't like what that man is saying, finds it attractive because you're showing up with all of who you are. Yeah. It's very compelling. And even if that is, like you said, not, um, it's a spirited sort of discussion in the moment and maybe even what we'd call an argument, at least it's true. At least you're saying, this is my truth. And she's saying, this is my truth. And at least you're standing on a ground that's real. It's not some phony sort of pleasing behavior it's raw and it's true. And afterwards, what you'll find is there is a greater magnetism between couples when they're able to do that. So men, when they can actually reclaim that voice and speak it, even when it's not pleasing, I believe is um, attractive to women because you're showing up with your personal power and that's, that's compelling. Absolutely. And I noticed that tends to give permission um, for the, woman or the other partner to be able to do that as well it's like you know one of you has to lead by example one of you has to be the first one who's vulnerable enough to yes be open and honest and that just creates this beautiful openness where the other person can see oh that's okay because they've probably had the same conditioning as us that it's not okay to say what you genuinely think or feel because you have to still consider the impact it may have on others but consider Mm. the impact it's having on you as well I think that, yeah, that fundamental imbalance where the needs and desires and emotions and whatever of other people is way valued higher than our own and our own well-being. Yes. Yep. Yep. The pleaser, mm. for sure. Yeah, the nice guy syndrome and nice girl syndrome. Yes. <laughs> yep. <laughs> what are the most, from your perspective, what are the most impactful changes guys can make on the way they relate with the world and relate with other people in it and relate with themselves yeah totally um and that's that's a big question as well um (laughs) only big questions (laughs) yeah only big questions yeah and so ah like we all get to adulthood none of us get out of childhood like unscathed you know in terms of accumulating trauma um which we could call emotional blocks, repressed emotion, times when we needed to speak up, but we didn't, times when we actually needed to say, I need love here, I need support, I'm scared, but we didn't, times when we felt angry, but we didn't speak up, times when we've experienced great loss and trauma. And so I feel like we accumulate over our you know, upbringings a lot of, even if you've had a beautiful family and a, a lovely privileged life like most of us have, we live in a violent culture in a lot of ways and um, no one gets out unscathed. And so everyone, when they get to adulthood, men, young men included, end up with a whole bunch of repressed emotional content. And that's, that is what drives like the repressed emotion, under undigested or unintegrated emotion that we hold in our bodies. It's, it's stored there in, in, in our system and it's, it has a charge to it. And so it informs how we show up in the world too. And it very much relates to us losing our voice in those moments when we need to speak up, but we can't find the 
uh, what to say or the courage to say it. And so those emotional blocks need to be felt and expressed. And so how do we do that? We can't do it through our heads. Like it's not an intellectual process. The emotional blocks inform the story that we run, run around with in our head, like we're not worthy of love or um, we're not going to make it in life or we don't deserve that person in our life. So they, the, the, the emotions inform the story, but the story doesn't cause the emotion. And so there's no point working on the story. I really feel like, um, you know, talk therapy, although it's valuable to a, an extent, is really limited in its ability for transformation and change. And so I think what I do with men and what I've found that works in my life is body felt, you know, um, release of that emotional content. So actually accessing the feeling, not the story, but the feeling in the body and using a technique. There's a few that I use with, with men to actually lean into that sharp place instead of running from it, instead of trying to distract ourselves with alcohol phones sex whatever it is you know food instead of like resisting that uncomfortableness actually lean into it and embrace that part of that feeling in the body and let it be as full as it needs to be and really feel it a lot of times that's enough just to give something expression and allow it to move and, and shed that layer of um stored emotional charge um Sometimes it's hard to access, you know, sometimes if we were just to sit together and say, oh, now access your trauma, it doesn't work like that. You know, we've <laughs> Come carefully, on, hurry up. <laughs> carefully, carefully constructed our lives so we don't feel it because it's uncomfortable. It's painful. We don't want to feel it. And so we'll run for miles away from it um, through addiction, you know, like super distractive experiences. Um, we'll get super busy in life. We'll run ourselves ragged trying to avoid this stuff. And so it's not easy to access it. but there, there are opportunities, there's windows of opportunity that present themselves when we're triggered. So when we're triggered by an external event, like a person said something to us and it's brought up our rage, or when we've had a, like some sort of experience where we feel, felt like we failed and it's brought up this sense of not being good enough, you know, like, and we, we can feel it. When you have those experiences naturally in life where that emotional con content is activated if you have enough um, sensory acuity to notice what's going on and not just own it as who you are not just own the self-doubt as who you are or the depression or the whatever and look at it as stored emotional energy and actually witness it and feel into it so stop what you're doing close your eyes sit in a chair privately and just feel that feeling in your body. What does it feel like? What is the sensation? You don't need to give it a label. You don't need to know where it comes from, what event it comes from. You simply just need to feel its resonance, like the sensation that it is, and feel it as long as it needs to be there. Maybe there's tears that come with it. Maybe it's you know anger, uh, which might need a more dynamic response. You know, but just feeling it in the body is an incredible way to just give it passage out of the body too. So emotion should be energy in motion. And that's fine when you're four and you're in the sandpit with the Tonka truck, you give it the, the movement it needs. But when you're seven, eight, 20, 30, we, we hold on to it because it's not appropriate for us to show that level of rage. It's not appropriate for us to get angry or speak out and we hold on to it. And so it gets stuck. 
And the problem with it getting stuck is that it's, it saps our own energy. And the analogy of, um, say, our body's full of water and we have, you know, all these balloons and each of the traumas that we've experienced or the repressed energy can be like a balloon full of air. And we need to hold that balloon down under the water so our life looks organized and we look like we've got our shit together you know if we, if, we, if we let that balloon up it might look chaotic and we might be crying in front of people and we might be sobbing and messy and or we might be all over the place not able to get our lives in order would be there'd be a lot of chaos but what we want to do is in an like in a manageable way allow those balloons like stop holding them down because they take energy to hold in place allow them to come up and to kind of burst um, and, and be expressed and be felt um, because if they're not, if they're held on long enough, you know, I believe it, they turn into d disease like cancer, back injuries, um, you know, other you know, autoimmune disease. Yeah. Like things that, yeah. Manifest into more, you know, dangerous afflictions. Yeah. It's an interesting line of thought that I read a book by, Dr. Gabor Mate a few years ago on it. Yeah. Um, which yeah. Uh, you're familiar. I like him. Yeah. Yeah. He's an, he's an interesting guy. And yeah, I do love the, the look into, okay, well, the more you repress, the more uh, it does cause a stress on the body. And if you, yes. you know, hold your body in, in stress for an extended period of time, that is where yeah stuff starts to go wrong. Cause it, yeah, there's just this yeah. constant sense of tension and, not a doctor, mm -hmm. so I won't prescribe anything. But yeah, it is interesting yeah. noticing also how much more alive I can feel after less. Like I'm not spending half my time thinking about all the things I'm not allowed to say or not allowed to express. Yes, um, yeah. not spending all that totally. filtering myself. Uh, I, know, yeah. I'm, I was in Africa last year. I met a really interesting guy who. Um, had a very, very interesting life. He'd been like just wandering around the world for the last 15 years. And mm. he, he said, look, my perspective on life is that the less I need to think about what I'm about to say or what I'm about to do, the better my life is. Mm. Absolutely. I really took that to heart because I really, yeah, like 99% of what I'm saying is before it comes out my mouth, it's like elegantly constructed to fit into this situation. Yeah. And yeah, yeah. Just absolutely. Out. Yeah. Flow. That's what I talk about with men too, like in terms of a goal in achieving in our lives. And I have it in my life too, as a goal is to achieve flow where you're in just natural flow and expression of just who you are unfiltered, undistorted, unregulated, and you're showing up with who you are. And when you're able to access that sort of flow state around who you are and your own authenticity, it's not trying because it's just who you are. You're just showing up with who you are. It's very powerful. It's very attractive. Um, people with that sort of flow are very charismatic, not in an overdone way where they've got big personalities and like, you know, the TV presented style of, you know, charisma. I'm talking about a resonance that they hold, a presence that's very attractive. They're willing to show up with who they are. They're willing to put people's noses out of joint. Um, they're willing to say things that are not popular. And even if you don't agree with them, 
we find them attractive because they've liberated <laughs> themselves from the prison that we feel they've walked that path and they've unshackled themselves from those past wounds that really inform um, and distort who we are. I do believe all of those repressed emotional state uh, energies and charges are really just distortions on our truth but we start to identify with them like I'm someone who is depressed or I'm someone that doesn't speak up in crowds or I'm someone that does this. And so we strongly identify with them before ever really looking at where did that come from and how do I release it? And so I believe what I call those things are distortions on who you are. You've got a whole collection of them and they, they kind of filter the light that you shine to the world and if we're able to release them one by one through emotion, like body felt experience and really giving them the expression they need, then um, our light just starts to shine more and more. And we're just showing up with who we are and it does become effortless. There are, is a sense of grace when you're in the flow. If you're um, teaching to a group and you're not thinking about what you're saying and you're in this beautiful flow, often it works so well, you know, like it's like you've got out of the way you're just sort of moving with, I don't know, just your own um, flow that's moving through you. You're not directing it even. And so I think that's attainable for everyone. Um, but it takes a journey of personal work. Um, more often than not, you know, men get to a certain stage. I, it happened to me at age 36. And I, and I realized I wasn't yet fully a man. Like I was like, I'm, I've made the numbers go up. But in a lot of ways, I'm still, I'm still embodied my teenager self um, in terms of maturity. And that's okay. Like, I think we should all be okay with that. None of us have come through a culture that really recognizes those passages and the rites of passage. Um, we're not witnessed by other men. We haven't been mentored and by other men. We haven't had all this stuff modeled to us. A lot of cases for us in our modern culture like I was at 36 going, wow, I'm only just recognizing I'm stepping into being a man. And what it took for me was having two kids, you know, and that, that initiation really demanded me to grow up. Um, and so it's a big journey. We don't become a man at 20 or 18 or 14 or 26, you know, it's, it's, it's not like that anymore. And so we have to actively seek out for ourselves mentors that have walked that path before and that you could have lots of different mentors for lots of different areas, but someone who has walked that path before and can show you um, as the fellow man, or at least hold you accountable along that journey too, because um, you know, that's a very uh, important role. I think we need to play for each other is in truth and honesty and compassion, hold each other accountable as men, you know, um, and don't buy each other's bullshit. That's the best way we can show up for other men. And I mean that in a good way. I mean in a very supportive and an empowering way. But hold each other accountable um, in terms of our own stuff and our own distortions. So what is it to be a man? Like you mentioned, you, like you noticed that you weren't one. So what, what needed to yeah. change in you? <laughs> it was for me... Um, those bits uh, for me and it, but I think it'll be unique for each individual but it was claiming my own personal power um, in relationship you know like to speak up like we we're talking about before to actually speak my truth to really 
do the work that it took to release myself from this pleasing, um, pleasing Sam and actually speak my truth even when I knew it wasn't going to be pleasing to my partner. So in that way, I was unshackling myself from my mother-son relationship in a way. Not that that was bad, it was normal, but just that that's what is um, cultivated out of the dynamic that we do these days, mother-son. And not seeing my partner as my mother that was going to approve of me of not or give me love or not or withdraw love or not, but just as another equal human being, another adult that I'm interacting with um, and from a place where I was claiming my power. So I was willing to say what was my truth. And so that took a long time. So 36 is, you know, like that's, that took a while. Um, so I feel like those were final pieces in the puzzle where the, the journey never ends, but I feel like I did step into um, being a man um, and claiming my own power around that. So I think for me, that was the final clincher, but for others, it might be different, you know? So I don't know what the overarching um, measuring stick would look like, but I guess it's an individual relationship to that. Absolutely. So it, it is interesting mm -hmm. hearing that it's kind of given me perspective that you know, as you step into the fullness of being a man, you stop looking up and down going, okay, well, they, they're going to approve of me and then I'm going to approve of them. Yeah. Now it's you're yep. looking at others as equals, and you're looking eye to eye. Yeah, and your ex, your internal centre is found internally as your own body felt sense of rightness. What's right for you? You have access to that feeling. You're willing to speak it, and it's not reliant on external authorities. And so we're very heavily invested in external authority in our culture. If you look at what's happening right now, and this is not speaking to the disease of the coronavirus or whatever it is, but it's speaking to the reaction. If you look at how we're looking to our parental body, the government, to parent us through this and, and support us with money, and I don't mean that any of this is bad, like don't take me the wrong way. I, I just mean that it's a reflection of where we're at as a culture that our, we're so invested in external authorities, be them institutions like the church, the police structures, the government, schools, you know, parental, like parent-child relationships, whether it is a parent or a child, our relationship with government at the moment is parent-child. And you save us if things go wrong. You tell us what to do. Tell us when we've been naughty, you know, reprimand us and, and penalise us when we've done all that. And people can argue that we need that um, to keep us all under control. But I actually... Um, like to see what it would look like if we were all to grow up into more sovereign uh, ownership over our own direction in life. And I think given, given um, that sort of freedom, we might be surprised how well we self-organize, how well we treat each other, um, how much compassion we can have for our fellow human being. And so the journey um, that you go on as an individual man of claiming your own sovereignty in that way is very much um, reflective, but at odds with the, um, the collective journey at the moment. And while ever we invest our authority externally and not internal rightness, we'll be forever sort of caught in this trap of not fully owning our personal power as individual human beings. And we keep 
like starting a topic and I'm like, Oh, I could talk about this now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'd love to just as you spoke about the government, it's so interesting looking at that through, uh, I've traveled to a fair few countries now and noticing like the different ways people, like people there relate with the government. And yes. you know, particularly in New South Wales, it's like that of a bratty teenager who like, mm-hmm hates mum and dad laying down the law so he's going to yeah. run mum and dad when something when they screw up and something goes wrong yeah uh yes but do you like to have any last words or last things to share before we wrap up this one i'm, I'm definitely gonna have you go back and have another conversation with you because there's way too much yeah. you're going through there's so much there is so much. I mean, the, the final thing I see, I, I, it's a positive message, you know, like it's around men, uh, um, and I'll speak to men um, because that's closest to my heart too, uh, are being asked to be so many different things these days. There's so many demands on men, and particularly as fathers, but even just without entering that sort of passage of fatherhood, we're being asked to be lots of different things now and we've also at the same time as there's a lot of pressure on us to be lots of different things whether it's in relationship in family in employment we're also have been not given much along the journey in terms of resources and skill sets to really understand what it is to be a man and so what i see these days is a lot of men getting to adulthood so to speak and going I need to go on my own journey. I need to find out who I am outside of these, the reality matrix that is being fed to me through media or culture or even family systems. And so what I would invite all men to do is go on that journey. If you're not on that journey of self-discovery or finding out who you truly are outside of those reference points, then find mentors to, to journey with you or go and do it something like a vision quest or a, a silent retreat or a, go and um, spend time alone in nature, just wandering and, 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 and find um, your own truth through that mechanism, but do something like we all, we don't have the structure. We're trying to reestablish it, but we don't have the cultural structure to raise good men yet. So at this stage, individually, we need to go and seek that out. We need to seek out the, the techniques, the people and the places that'll allow us to, grow and evolve into our own personal power to heal those wounds that distort our truth and to find our voice and step up and do what you're here to do. Like the world needs people to live their truth, not just fall in line and go and get the job where you're meant to get the job, but actually find out what you're here to do and, and, and do it um, because the world is going through a huge transformational passage and there we need men of um truth and authenticity and also not being afraid of their own power beautifully said sam thank you you for sharing thank you thank you for being here today with me yeah it's great it's very enjoyable (laughs) i'm glad there's going to be a few more iterations i hope you're ready for yes absolutely yeah Thanks again, man. And I'll talk Great. To you Thanks, Jordan. Thanks so much for listening to that podcast. If you'd like to join in the discussion online or send me a message or ask any questions, you can find us on Facebook at Wild at Heart, on Instagram at Strictly for My Gingers, 
and online at wildatheartrelationships.com.au. Until next time, see you guys.